Welcome to IR Talk, a podcast about international relations theory and practice. I'm your host, Elon Kluger. Today, we are speaking to Dr. William Bernstein. Dr. Bernstein holds a PhD in chemistry as well as an MD and practiced as a neurologist before moving to writing on finance and history. He's the author of numerous books, including The Delusions of Crowds, A Splendid Exchange, How Trade Shaped the World, which we'll be speaking about today. Dr. Bernstein, welcome to IR Talk. Pleasure to be here. Let us start with the relations between trade and war. In Norman Angel's famous book, The Great Illusion, which he wrote right before World War I, he predicted that uh, trade between nations would lead to war being irrational, and therefore there would be greater harmony and prosperity. Obviously, that turned out to be wrong, but in a way, it has some truth to it. So what relation do you think trade does have with war? Well, there certainly is a relationship. There's an overly optimistic viewpoint, which has been prevalent really for the past couple hundred years, starting with the rise of the free trade movement in the early 19th uh, century with Richard Cobden and among other people. And it was the idea that trade would, would abolish war. And it was particularly prevalent just before the lights went out in Europe in 1914 for really for two generations. And so if you're a pessimist, uh, if you're a skeptic of that point of view, that is certainly a point in your favor. I think, though, that the nuclear weapon in this argument is the history of Europe over the past 70 years. As Churchill famously pointed out, the Hun and the Gaul have been at war with each other for the past several hundred years, and the European Union and its predecessor, the uh, common market, and the steel and coal community before that basically put that to an end. The history of Europe before 1945 was, was almost constant big power war with some hiatuses, which weren't perfect, you know, especially following the Congress of Vienna in 1815. But the idea of a war among major European powers today is, is simply incomprehensible. It's hard to imagine how that would happen, even in the most dire of circumstances. And to me, that's the ultimate argument in favor of the argument that you propound. So if we look at someone like Henry Kissinger. In his memoirs, he notes that he had almost no training in economics, hadn't taken any economics classes, and looked at trade as sort of low politics and left it to other people. And he still tried to have some influence, but it was only through his advisors rather than through himself. And as your book shows, trade is integral to the shape of our society and much of our behavior. So how much intention should we give it if is it really low politics or is it something much more important? Well, you know, I mean, Henry Kissinger was certainly a master of complexity. And I think that admission of his is just, I think, a rueful admission that it was one factor that he had ignored and he probably wished he had paid uh, more attention to. It's one factor among any, but, you know, there are other things that over overshadow it. I think as Kissinger well understood, we are a murderous species that is subject to to, you know, the vicissitudes of tens of thousands, if not millions of years of evolution history. And those are the primary factors that drive big power politics. But certainly economics is, is a part of it. I mean, the uh, you know, if you can go back all the way to the Peloponnesian War and see that one of the things that drove the Athenians uh, and the Spartans to be at each other's throats was the fact that Athens couldn't grow its own food. And it was dependent first upon grain from Egypt, but most critically from grain from the northern Black Sea shores, what's today the Ukraine, and that its enemies realized that it could choke them, that it could choke the Athenians to buy 
by closing off the uh, the straits, the, the, what's now the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. And that's largely what led to the Peloponnesian War. So we're in a period that Professor John Lewis Gaddis has termed the long peace. And trade is certainly an aspect of that. Would you say it's the most important or is there other factors? Well, I, I think it, it is one important factor. You're talking about an extraordinarily complex geopolitical system with a lot of moving parts. Trade is certainly one of those parts, and it drives some countries more than other countries. So, for example, the Europeans, I think, give trade an awful lot more weight uh, than the than the average national entity would do. It's obviously very important to the Chinese, probably more important to the Chinese than it is to us. After all, only about 20 to 25 percent of our economy is tied up in trade, whereas that portion for the for the Chinese is is much higher. On the other hand, I doubt that Vladimir Putin very much cares about trade. So let's talk about the Corn Laws. Can you just give a brief overview for our listeners, and then we'll uh, talk more about them? Sure. The uh, Corn Laws were an ancient, almost ancient set of statutes that protected the British landholding class. And the way that it did it was they put various tariffs on imported grain. Now, over the period of centuries uh, following the medieval period, the English lost their agricultural self-sufficiency. And so they were became increasingly dependent on grain from the continent, first from France and then later from the from the Baltic. And so what the British aristocracy did was to keep tariffs high in order to maintain the profits on their lands because they didn't want to face competition from, say, French and and the later grain from the from the Baltic trade ports. And so this was all well and good for them, but of course it starved English uh, the average member of the British, British population that increased their cost of grain. And there's no question that probably thousands and thousands of people starved to death because of this. And Richard Cobden, who was an early English economist in the, in the uh, 19th century, realized this and formed the Anti-Corn Law League, which eventually overturned the Corn Laws. Now, the way that he did it was extremely interesting because in that era, the only pressure group or the only political alliances that could really communicate and coordinate with each other were the British aristocracy, the upper classes, simply because communication and transport costs so much. It cost, you know, probably a day or two's wages for an ordinary person to send a letter from London to Edinburgh. Now, about that time, the railroad comes into use and greatly decreases transport costs and brings in something called the penny post. So for a one English penny, you could send a letter across the country. And Cobden used that to organize his political forces in order to defeat the, the Corn Laws. So it's a, that, that's a, it's an interesting story in terms of not only trade policy, but also communications technology as well, of how early advances in communications technology empowered the disempowered. So the way I was viewing it was sort of like one of those, key, it's one of the key points in terms of the restructuring of British political parties as well, because the, the conservatives actually led the repeal of it in was 1846, and that led to Peel joining the Whigs and his followers, really. But it's sort of like a flashpoint in terms of politics, but it's based on trade. So can that really, does that really happen in the U.S. politics, or is it something that uh, remains on the sidelines? 
Oh, God, no. I mean, trade is an extraordinarily important issue in U.S. politics. Now, if you look at what drives, what has driven American voters over the past decade or two, it's really less economic things than cultural factors. At the risk of sounding overtly political, I would, pref- I would define the modern Republican as not someone who cares as much about fiscal responsibility and national security strength, which is the traditional Republican concerns. Today, Republicans, the average Republican voter, cares much more about transgender bathrooms and cancel culture and Mr. Potato Head than they do about the sorts of policy issues that, you know, we're talking about here. Those policy issues are important, but they're not as important as the cultural issues. So let's leave the cultural issues aside and talk just about the policy issues. There is simply no question that free trade, while benefiting a nation as a whole, does do severe damage to certain groups. There are always winners and there are always losers in the in the free trade game. So if you're a steel worker, if you're a textile worker, you have been badly hurt. There are entire regional areas in the United States that have been seen their economies absolutely savaged by inexpensive foreign competition. And so the question is, is what do you do about that? Well, you can do one of two things. You can protect the industries, which history shows is a disaster because it increases consumer prices, it ossifies the industries that you're protecting, and eventually destroys their their competitiveness. Or you can build a social welfare network and a safety net that protects workers, which is what the Europeans have chosen to do. And it's no accident that support for trade liberalization is directly proportional to the strength of the social welfare network. That's what you see. That's the difference, for example, between the United States and Europe. Europeans are are certainly concerned about trade competition, particularly in the agricultural sector, but they're not nearly as concerned about it in the United States. And that's because in the United States, if your factory moves to Mexico or Bangladesh and your community loses a large number of its jobs, you're thrown to the wolf. Whereas in Europe, you're going to get uh, much more substantive support. You're not going to lose your health care. Your kids aren't going to lose their college educations and you won't even lose your retirement. And that's that's the problem is, is, is in order to have free trade, you also have to have a generous social uh, support network, which the Europeans understand and we don't. Yeah, you quote in the book, uh, Pat Buchanan in 1996, which is certainly uh, a good prediction, at least for the 2016 election, even though the book was written earlier, about some of his more interesting and more correct critiques rather than some of his social politics about this danger with trade. So would you say that that's something that's just ignored by both our political parties and they prefer to either on one side put tariffs that doesn't really solve a problem and on the other side just ignore the uh, issues with globalization, or is it actually being? I I think that is a a rather pessimistic and unfortunately correct assessment of the situation. We haven't really faced these issues. I'm somewhat heartened by Joe Biden's, basically his his basic embrace of the the childhood tax credits. And it's basically a, a wealth transfer from wealthy people to poor families. You know, if you give $4,000 a year, $3,000 a year per child, that puts food on the table, that enables mothers to remain at work and get childcare and, you know, put shoes on kids on kids' feet. And there's simply no question that, that if you're going to invest in any segment of the population, investing in young people is 
the way to go. So I'm, I'm somewhat heartened uh, by that. And I hope that that feature of his policy, of his fiscal policy becomes permanent. So let's talk China. Before, when the China was led into the, the global trade network and WTO, there was a lot of predictions that trade would lead to Chinese liberalization. And now it's sort of fashionable to look at those people and say, oh, they were wrong. I mean, history has not ended yet. And it's not it's too soon to say it hasn't. But does trade in history, does trade necessarily lead to liberalization or is it just simply the exchange of goods? Well, I, I think that's a weak force that leads to liberalization because it puts people face to face with each other across the globe. It's difficult to attack the country militarily that's producing your cars and your microchips. On the other hand, you know, there are other factors that are involved. I'm a fan of the what's called the modernization theory, which basically posits that the more successful an economy is, the more people are removed from concerns about existential survival, that is putting food on the table and putting a roof over their head, the more they become concerned with more abstract political goods, the more, the more concerned they become with political freedom. If you're a dictator who is starving your population, that population is going to care a whole lot less uh, about freedom of the press than will a wealth population. And so what modernization theory posits is that as countries become wealthier, they become more democratic because their populations uh, become more concerned with non-material goods and uh, more, more, more abstract goods like, like political freedom. And there's a famous former Spanish finance minister, I'm blocking on his name, I think his name was Rodolfo, who was asked when, you know, back 50 years ago or 60 years ago, when Spain would become a democracy. And he said, it'll become a democracy when GDP passes $2,000, per capita GDP passes $2,000 per year, which is precisely what happened. Of course, that happened in 1975 or 76, which is also when Franco died. So that was a very nice coincidence. But you see the same thing happening over and over again in South Korea, in Taiwan, it went from being repressive, poor repressive states to being wealthy democratic states. The same thing happened in, in Chile. You know, Augusto Pinochet was no walk in the park for anybody, but he did revitalize Chile's economy. And eventually Chile became a relatively worth, wealthy country that threw him out, both figuratively and literally. And, and so, you know, let's, that would, that, that led me in a book that I read, wrote just before I wrote Birth of wrote Splendid Exchange called Birth of Plenty, in which I thought that just might happen in China. Uh, and a lot of other people thought that would happen in China as China became wealthier, would become more democratic. And we were wrong. So I guess what I'm arguing against is overarching political, political science theories. Now, the question I, I'm, I'm still, you know, I think the book is, as you're pointing out, is still open, or the question is still open about China, because what has happened in China is it's become more authoritarian. It has become a a one person uh, state with a cult of personality with a ruler for life. I mean, you know, Xi Jinping is, is now a ruler for life. And that rarely ends well. You know, you, you may start out as Lee Kuan Yew, but you may wind up as Robert Mugabe. Yeah. And I think some of the strategy is maintaining public diplomacy and not necessarily just focusing on the government of China, which has uh, certain ends, but the people of China, which is the people that would be trying to create a more democratic government. Do you think that 
part of that is just opening trade more? Is that is that what modernization theory would just prescribe for that, or is there something else to do? Well, modernization theory has more to do uh, with, with the overall growth of the economy. Free trade, open trade is important for economic growth, but it's not the most critical factor. All right. So I think it's a relatively small determinant. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to overemphasize the importance of trade and economic growth and political liberalization. I think it's much less important uh, than the underlying institutional factors that produce economic growth, namely rule of law, equality under law, buttressed by independent judiciary. And the problem with those things is that they largely arise from a nation's culture, and 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 that's that's a that's a subject that isn't talked about very much. It's been approached by some people, like Edward Banfield and um, and Robert Putnam's early work. But people really don't talk. They talk about the importance. Economists love to talk about the importance of institutions, and they are critically important. But they rarely talk about where those institutions actually come from. So let's talk about just general trends in protectionism. It, in reading about uh, free trade, people, it's sort of like a Whig historian lens, which is the pace of history has led to decrease of protectionism and free trade is sort of the end of history. And you make the case in the book that there are at least moderately good reasons for protectionism, such as addressing some political concerns, even if they're not necessarily the best addressed. So why is that the only reason why protectionism returns or is it that there's something actual positive about it? you can make certain positive arguments in terms of protectionism the, the the most cogent argument is the infant industry argument which is that you want to protect your 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 nascent industries from protection so they can grow the problem of course is regulatory and and legislative capture is what happens is is that once you protect these infant industries, they grow into adolescents and adult industries, which continue to want protection. And so, so the question is, is, is where does it, where does it end? And it rarely, it rarely does. Uh, and you wind up with mon simply monstrous situations like the U.S. sugar industry, which has grown used to protections, and you, you get in, which is because of the due to the logic of collective action. You know, Mansur Olson's famous theory that you know sugar gets enormous subsidies in the U.S. because the sugar growers get millions of dollars each and hundreds of millions of dollars each in some cases in increased revenues because of these tariffs, and the rest of us are paying you know five cents more for a pound of sugar, and we don't really notice. It. And and that's the problem is 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 that is that it is it's it is suspicious of slippery slope arguments, but this is one place where the slippery slope really does apply. So is free trade the exception rather than the rule? It certainly is in terms of historically, but is will that be continue going forward or for the past next few years? Well, if you just look at the raw data, the best place to go for this is, is Doug Irwin's work on the subject. If you just look at the, you know, the, the, the amount of world trade that is subject to tariffs and what the levels of those tariffs are, they fell, they fell very rapidly after you know, the, the, the first GATT agreements, the first GATT rounds. And the low-hanging fruit basically got, got handled, you know, coal and steel and other manufactured goods. Agricultural goods, particularly in Europe, have been much harder to crack in terms of reducing their subsidies, particularly in Europe and in Japan, because Japanese and European farmers are so very, are so very, very powerful. And, and so 
those those remain. And I think what's happened is that the low hanging fruit has, has already been plucked. And the stuff that remains, particularly agricultural subsidies, uh, are much, much harder to crack. And I think we're kind of at an impasse. I think that became apparent during the Doha round, you know, about 10 or 12 years ago, when that collapsed, essentially. And there really haven't been any major, there hasn't been any major progress since the collapse of the Doha round. So we're, we're, we're at a standstill. We've been at a standstill. And I, I think we're over the next, you know, if I, I hate making predictions. I think anyone who predicts things over, you know, a 10 or a 20 or a 50 year period is, is probably doing, trying to do something very foolish. But I think what we'll see over the next half century in terms of tariff policy and tariff uh, regulations is we're going to see just a lot of backing and forthing and not much progress. You quote a lot of poetry in the book, especially just about how people have understood trade within like what's happening in their culture. And my first thought, of course, was Constantine Cavafy's Ithaca when he talks about stopping at Phoenician trading stations. So to what extent has this economic activity had on the art of the world? Is it uh, just some rare poetry, some rare uh, essays or novels are about how trade has shaped the world? Or is it really one of the key driving forces? Well, I have, I have to admit something, which is, you know, the book was published in 2008, and it was largely written between about 2004 and 2007, which was a long time ago. So, you, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm drawing a blank when you're asking me about the connection between the arts and trade. There can be no question that, 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 that free trade and the, the social and economic intercourse of peoples affects the, the arts and and culture you know i can go you know into into a uh, a grocery store not too far from near here and you know and and i can you know turn on netflix and i can watch a you know a cable series that was that was made in india and, and so certainly it, it it certainly affects culture and poetry i i have to admit i don't read a lot of poetry i do i do watch a lot of netflix and i can certainly see the effects of trade on that so how did writing uh, the book shape your view on trade? Did you have different conceptions before getting asked to write it or was it uh, different? Uh, I, I generally come from a pro-free market point of view, and I certainly was in favor of free trade, but I'm also a scientist by training, and I'm also always seeking out contrary data. And there are some contrary data in terms of the, the, the benefits and costs of free trade. Free trade does have costs, and I, I was certainly made aware of that when I wrote the book. Now, what has happened since I wrote the book, there has been more data, which has been developed and uncovered by economists, particularly a guy at, uh, I think, Harvard, by the name of David, who has done a lot of work on the costs, the social and economic costs of free trade. Some of the data I quoted earlier was, was his. You know, if you want to look at the, the, the political balance of power has shifts has shifted. It has been in just those electoral districts and counties that have been that have lost the most jobs, which is not a surprise to, to Japanese competition. If you look, you know, if you want to know where where the balance has shifted from Democrat to Republican, it's it's going to be in the counties that lost the most jobs to Japanese competition. So then does that you mentioned earlier how most of that is still voting patterns chased on cultural issues, but is it actually some of it is at least rational decision making based on current economic concerns or is it something different? 
Well, I, I think that, you know, like everything else in politics, it's extraordinarily complex and multifactorial. So if you're, you know, sitting in Youngstown, Ohio, I think it's the economic considerations from foreign competition that are going to be driving voters. If, on the other hand, you're, you know, talking about a rural area in Mississippi, I think they're going to be much more concerned with cultural issues. So since you're not an academic, how did you get a greater look on trade than there's some like academic training in, in history and archives and all that kind of thing? But it's certainly it probably is much harder um, just coming out from a neurology perspective. So how did you get accustomed to writing in that way? Well, it started out 30 years ago when I realized that I worked in a country as a practicing physician, that I realized I worked in a country that didn't have a functioning social welfare system. And I realized I was going to have to save and invest on my own. So I did what I thought any scientist would do in that situation, which is that I began to read the peer-reviewed literature, basic texts. I collected data, which was no small, small feat 30 years ago. And I began building models uh, and I came to certain conclusions and I decided to write those up and by and by I got some finance books published. Now you can't write about finance without talking about financial history. You can't invest competently unless you understand that you have a working knowledge of financial history, because you have to be able to see the pattern, see how people behave, and also mirror that in your own behavior, and that the history feeds into that critic quite critically. And so I realized that I enjoyed writing about history. And I, I became aware that the world's highest equity returns happen to be in largely English European, excuse me, European countries, particularly English speaking ones, and particularly Northern European ones. And I started asking myself why that was. And it turned out that it was the same thing that drove their economic growth, which was their economic institutions, which derived from English common law. So that was why I wrote The Birth of Plenty, which was what that book was about. And that book got the attention of my current publisher, Grove Atlantic Press. And they asked me to write a book about the history of world trade, which I did. And that's how you came to read this book. And I realized that I enjoyed reading history. Now, if you have scientific training, it's really not difficult to read the academic historical literature. It's not even that difficult to read the economic literature and understand it. And if you have a scientific bent of mind and you're able to write, you can put those things together. And I, and I, you know, and obviously I'm doing this because I enjoy doing it. I, I, I immensely enjoy digging into the academic literature on any given subject and, and developing my own ideas about it and writing about it. And people seem to want to read, read it. So what is it about that scientific training? Because I, I heard someone say who got rejected from a lot of medical schools and he said, basically the, the smartest person at like Brookings Institution working on, uh, International international economic policy is like when is still like at the level of a regular medical doctor. I don't know if that's true, but just that in terms of that difficult training. What how does that actually transfer to another field? I don't think that's true at all. You know, I don't. I don't. You know, getting into medical school is about a little more than smart. So you have to have certain other characteristics as well. And of course, you know, I got into medical school fifty years ago, and things have changed as as well. To be perfectly honest, most of the doctors that I dealt with weren't as smart as most of the people I've 
dealt with in economics. And, and the reasons for that are, are, are interesting. To be a good doctor, you have to be spending most of your time inside the box. You don't want a doctor that, that goes outside, that spends a lot of his or her time outside the box. Being, being a doc, being a good doctor is about just being compulsive and following checklists and being under, you know, you have to have certain basic understanding. And in fact, I think you can actually be too smart to be a good doc because if you're really, if you're really smart, if you have an IQ in the 150 to 170 range, medicine is going to seem awfully boring to you because it's not that conceptually difficult, you know, and, and there's a, there's a, there's sort of a dichotomy here because there are brilliant physicians who win Nobel prizes, but they're people, interestingly, who spend a lot of their time outside the box. You don't win a Nobel prize without spending your, a lot of your time intellectually out of the box. And actually, you don't want those people taking care of you. You don't want the guy who's won the Nobel prize in medicine actually taking care of your health just for, just for that reason, because they, they tend to be people whose minds wander and spend outside the box, who spend a lot of their time outside the box. And it's one of the things I observed in medical schools, the people who were the brilliant researchers and won the medical and won Nobel Prizes weren't actually the world's best clinicians, whereas the people who were really good clinicians weren't the most brilliant thinkers. So how did that apply to working on financial history and uh, economic issues? That's a good question. I think you have to spend a little bit of your time outside the box to be a good economist or a good historian. You can't simply be accepting everybody else's point of view. You have to be able to think for yourself and make your own connections. So it helps to have it helps to be a little inside the box, but you also have to spend a, a bit of your time outside the box if you're going to do good history and good economics. So going to our closing questions, the first one is how does someone interested in financial history and trade read the news in a way that's different than the uh, standard? What you really need to be doing is 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 going is 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 stepping back. So the way, for example, I read an article in the New York Times or The Economist, or the way I read a book is I just don't read them straight through, or I might do that. But I'm always asking myself, is this going to stimulate further? Am I, you know, is, do I, should I go, should I get deeper into the weeds in this? And so typically, for example, what an article in The Economist will do is they will quote an academic piece and they make it very easy to find that academic piece. The New York Times does that as well. So that's the first place you go. It also never hurts to look at Wikipedia, not because Wikipedia gets things right, although they do, they're, they're very accurate, but the references in Wikipedia will get you climbing the bibliographic tree. So you start with their basic references, maybe there'll be some academic articles, and then you start looking at their references. And so, you know, you're climbing what I call the, the, the bibliographic tree, which is the references, the references, the references, the references. And if you really want to command a sub, what you do is you don't stop doing that until you start seeing the same material over and over again. And then, you know, then you know you, you climbed to the top of that bibliographic tree. So then and my so last, yeah. but, but, but there's, there's, you know, and you have to be careful about what sources you read. The one thing, you know, I will tell any young person listening to this podcast is that for God's sakes, subscribe to The Economist. And you can generally get it for free from your library's database system. There are, you know, most, most big libraries now, it's like three or $400 a year. It's expensive, but you can generally get it for free from various electronic apps from your library and read it religiously. Within about five minutes of meeting someone, I can tell whether they read The Economist or not. And that's a good place to start on the bibliographic tree and start on the things, the, the, the literature that you really want to read that's really important. 
The final question is, do you think we know more than the Athenians did about world politics in the time of the Peloponnesian War? Well, of course we do. You know, there's, you know, I mean, Plato and Aristotle may have known something about political science, but we certainly know a lot more about it now. And of course, a lot of Plato and Aristotle are, are just dead wrong. I mean, you don't want to be ruled by philosopher king. You know, if we haven't learned that in the past couple hundred years, then, you know, we haven't learned, we haven't learned anything. So we've gotten much better at it. The problem is that the risks have gotten higher. The Greeks weren't able to, you know, people in the Greek age weren't able to blow up the planet. Now we're able to. So one little mistake back 2,500 years ago may not have ended, you know, would, would not have ended civilization. Whereas one small error, one small mistake in interpreting a line of computer code can blow up the planet in today's, in, 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 in today's world. And that's something we, we don't think about a lot. We're, you and we as human beings are subject to recency and we haven't blown up the planet the past 70 years. And so we think that we're safe. Uh, we're not safe. The sword of Damocles hangs over each and every one of us every minute of the day in the terms in, ter in the form of the world's nuclear arsenals.